We're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Always great to hear the Word of God, but even better to see it with your own eyes as well. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a Bible, a gift from the Lord to you today. This morning we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, he says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead don't rise... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for every opportunity and privilege that we have to be able to open up your Bible, to surrender ourselves to the voice of your Holy Spirit, to make it alive and to speak to us. Lord, we live in a world that is talking and talking and so many voices and so many sounds, and we've been subjected to so many sentences and so many words in the last week, and all it does is make us crave your voice more than ever. And so we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, through your word this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A false teaching had gotten a foothold in the city, the church in the city of Corinth, and that false doctrine is encapsulated wonderfully and concisely in verse 12 where Paul says there is no, the teaching was that there is no resurrection. And the Apostle Paul takes the entirety of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, one of the most treasured and beautiful and deep passages in all of the Bible then to correct this error. And thus far as we've been looking at the chapter, he has reminded the church at Corinth and us that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is just as vital to the gospel as the death of Jesus upon the cross for our sins and his burial. He's also spoken to us of the catastrophic consequences, spiritual consequences that occur to Christianity and to us as Christians, if there be no resurrection. As we saw last week, he then spoke about, uh, tied our resurrection to the resurrection of Jesus in communicating that our resurrection is as sure 
as the resurrection of Jesus. And that's as sure as it gets. And this morning, in this passage, the Apostle Paul continues by declaring that the denial of resurrection not only has very serious spiritual consequences in a person's life, but practical consequences as well. And he lists for us here three practical casualties of this wrong belief that there is no resurrection. And the three casualties are logic, Christian service, and holy living. In verse 29, he speaks of the casualty that not believing in resurrection makes of logic. He says in verse 29, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? For why then are they baptized for the dead? In the church at Corinth, there were some who were being baptized for the dead. You say, what in the world was that? I don't know. And nobody really knows. There are uh, one commentator or, or student of the passage estimated that there are now over 200 different ideas by uh, students of the Bible and commentators as to what this practice was in, in an attempt to try and explain it. Probably the best guess is that some of the Christians in Corinth were being water baptized on behalf of Christians who had come to a faith in Christ but died before they could be water baptized. Uh, They might have put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and then because of persecution against Christianity, they died before they could be water baptized. Or perhaps some had put their faith in Jesus while on their deathbed. And so in the final days, and the final hours of their life, there was not the ability for them to be water baptized or some kind of a scenario like that. Though whatever was happening here, though it's unknown to us, it was very clear to the Apostle Paul and very clear to the church at Corinth in terms of what was being addressed. Whatever the practice was, It's very important to notice in verse 29 how carefully the Apostle Paul distances himself from this practice. You notice in verse 29 the worst use of the word they. He says, otherwise, what will they do? He does not say, otherwise, what will we do? He had no part in the practice and was not interested in it. He said, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized uh, for the dead? So he doesn't use the word we here because he didn't practice this in any way, whatever it was, nor did the larger body of Christ at the time. Nowhere is this mention of being baptized for the dead Nowhere uh, is, was that taught by Jesus in his public ministry. It wasn't practiced in the early church. There's no record of it being practiced in the book of Acts. The only mention of it in the epistles is found in this one letter, uh, in this one verse here in chapter 15, where Paul is, uh, again, being very careful in his handling uh, of it and not really embracing it at all. 
Someone might, this gets really curious, if somebody gets really curious about all of this, someone might say, well, why didn't the Apostle Paul take time at this point in the letter to, to correct the practice or to denounce the practice? And I think he did fail to do so for the simple reason that it didn't serve his purpose at all in writing this chapter on resurrection. Clearly, the Holy Spirit wanted this chapter to be exactly as it is before us, and he did not allow the Apostle Paul or inspire the Apostle Paul to run down that rabbit trail and and deal with it. And so just because the Christians in the church at Corinth were doing something goofy in this regard in terms of baptizing for the dead, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit had to then have that goofiness on their part dictate the content and the direction of this chapter, this chapter on resurrection. If you've ever been to maybe a church where there's Bible, somebody's teaching a Bible study, and um, or you've been to a lecture where the subject is of uh, supreme importance to you and uh, you're glued to the content of what's being spoken, somebody raises their hand to ask a question, and the question just takes everything out into left field, and, and it departs from the, the beauty and the substance and the depth, depth of what was being spoken. You think to yourself, oh, man, I wish he or she had just kept on subject and didn't open it up and allow this thing to get hijacked in that kind of a way. And I think in much the same way, the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit have no interest in that happening related to this letter. He stayed on message and continued to write uh, this larger kind of treatise on, on the resurrection. And candidly, I'm thankful that Paul stayed on point because I don't think that the chapter could be improved in any way by then getting bogged down in whatever this practice was, the chapter is really simply perfection, just as it is. Now, one thing that we do know is we do know that this, practice, this passage does not affirm what the Mormon church has made of this particular verse. And in terms of Mormon belief and practice, they believe that baptism is necessary for uh, salvation, that no one can enter into heaven without being water baptized and so and and also being water baptized by someone who has the proper authority to do that and so they will water baptize a living mormon on behalf of a relative who had died without being water baptized in order to qualify them for entering into heaven. If you can't get into heaven without being water baptized and you die before you're water baptized, if that's the teaching it's a, and it is their teaching, then you're in a tough spot. So what they came up with was this baptism for the dead. And when a person is water baptized for a dead per- person, a Mormon does this, then the dead person that is in the netherland on the other side of this life is informed someone was baptized for you and then they're able to accept that baptism on their behalf and enter into heaven or they can then refuse the water baptism on their behalf as well. And that's why every Mormon temple has a room, usually in the basement, not always, but it has a great uh, pool of water, a baptismal fountain, and uh, people are being baptized there for their 
uh, dead relatives. And all of this is conducted by officials who have authority to do that kind of thing. And all of this helps explain why the Mormons are so much into genealogies. They're the probably the forerunners of genealogical studies in the world today. You say, why would that be of such interest to them? Well, they go back and go through their bloodlines and then water baptize in many cases on behalf of those who have uh, already died. Now, clearly, that is not what was going on in the church of Corinth, or Paul would have addressed it. Because nobody gets into heaven by believing in Jesus and anything. You don't add an and to Jesus' death upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and our faith in him and his resurrection. And so you don't add water baptism. Nothing gets added in terms of human effort for salvation. That's why Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he said, For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not Even that not of yourself. It's a gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible also teaches the fact that once a person dies, our eternal uh, destination is sealed. The Bible says it's appointed unto a man once to die, and then comes the resurrection, uh, then comes the judgment. We have, in this life, only are we able to determine our eternal destination and then death absolutely seals that. There are no second chances. And so what Paul is doing here in writing to them away from the air of Mormonism and into what's actually happening here, he simply declares to these Christians in Corinth and water baptizing for the dead that being baptized for the dead is completely illogical for those that don't believe in resurrection. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and if they uh, didn't believe in life after death, then why in the world would you be water baptized on behalf of those who've already died? What good can it do for them? If everything ends with death in this life, then they're not even in the next life to even water baptize for them. And what difference would it make? And so why would you be concerned at all with this is the question that Paul is posing to them. And so they're engaged in this activity at the expense of logic. He moves on in verses 30 and 32 to also declare that a failure to believe in resurrection makes a casualty of Christian service. And Paul declares that if there is no resurrection from the dead, there's no life after this one, no heavenly or eternal reward for Christian service rendered in this life, then why in the world would anybody give their life to it? And Paul in essence is saying, if there is no resurrection, if there is no life, nothing after this life, then why am I killing myself Serving the Lord the way that I am. Why am I living my life in a way that puts my life in danger by being faithful to God's call upon my life? Puts me in danger every hour. Why in the, in the world would I be involved in this? For the adrenaline rush? 
Why would I have fought with beasts in Ephesus, speaking about the devout followers of the mythological goddess Diana among the Romans, who Paul, when he went to Ephesus, his ministry was so effective there that it was drying up their religion and drying up their business. And they knew it was Paul that was behind it and the Holy Spirit upon his life. And they wanted to pull him into the theater that was in the city after they created a riot and wanted to pull him limb from limb. And that's what he's talking about there. Why would I go through that? Why would I face that if this is the only heaven that we can look forward to this life? If there is no resurrection, no life after this one, no future reward for Christian service, as the Bible promises then the logical conclusion would be to abandon our Christian service and just live for today. Why? Because logically, if there is an eternity, then we should live for eternity. But if there is only this life, then we should only live for this life and then join all of those that have embraced the Epicurean philosophy of let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And indeed, if there is no resurrection, no life after this one, then all of the self-sacrifice required in Christian service is illogical, as Paul says in verse 2, because it is of no advantage. It's of no benefit. There is no future reward for it because death ends it all. And as Christians, we endure the hardships and the self-sacrifice and the persecutions and the privations that we do because we know there is a resurrection. And we know that there is life after this life and we choose to live supremely for that life, including being faithful to our Christian service. And the Bible is full of this. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether for good or bad. Romans 8.28, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. For its obvious meaning, but I like to use the word reckon, and that verse has it in there. makes me feel like I'm in Oakdale a little bit. But Paul wrote, and he said, For I reckon, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. He wrote again in the second letter to the Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In fact, Paul closes this entire chapter having to do with the resurrection on this very point, in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And Jesus himself in the parable of the talents spoke of the greeting that his disciples will receive upon being faithful to our Christian service and in God's call upon our life when he says that he eagerly desires that we would be greeted by him with well done thou good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of our Lord. And so faithfulness in ministry is strongly tied to the resurrection. Without a life after this one, what would be the point of serving the Lord? What would be the point of the gospel or preaching the gospel if there is no everlasting life, if there is no life beyond this? Christian ministry without resurrection, it becomes illogical and it would simply cease to exist. Now, in the Western world, including the United States, it is rapidly gravitating toward a very selective interpretation of Epicurean philosophy. It is not the fullness of Epicurean philosophy, but it is the part of the Epicurean philosophy that the Western world likes. And and what it likes most is the idea that happiness is found, number one, in embracing of pleasure, and number two, the advance, uh, the avoidance of pain. You get two things to really speak of Western culture, including our culture. It's built around those two things, the pursuit and experience of pleasure, and that at all costs, the avoidance of pain. And the Western world, including our country, is gravitating toward the Epicurean philosophy. There's a reason for it. It isn't just happening because it's happening. It isn't happening in a vacuum. There is a reason that we are gravitating toward it in the way that we are. And we are gravitating toward it for the simple reason that a smaller and smaller percentage of our population takes seriously the idea of resurrection, that there is a life after this one, that there is a heaven, that there is a hell, that there is a coming judgment, that one day each of us are going to need to give an account to God for the life that we lived, whether for good or for bad, that this life is to be lived conscious of the life to come. And the natural result of the rejection of all of that is exactly what Paul declares here. When you remove the belief in resurrection, it doesn't just have a spiritual impact upon individuals and a society as a whole, but it also has a very physical, practical impact as well. People will not only leave this world unprepared for eternity and their appointment before God, but they will also then tend to live materialistic, self-focused, pleasure-oriented, sensual, non-sacrificial lives now. And without the resurrection, we are left without the necessary motivation 
to live for someone or something greater than ourselves and even other than ourselves. And so you throw away the two great commandments that encapsulate the entirety of the Old Testament, that we've been created to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. All of that goes out the window, and everything becomes self-focused and world-focused. And as this philosophy infiltrates Christendom today or the church today, the first casualty will be and always is Christian service because Christian service involves hardship and it involves sacrifice and it involves pain. The third casualty of a failure to believe in the resurrection, in resurrection, is a holy life. And he speaks of that in verses 33 and 34. And we see it everywhere in our culture. The lower the percentages go for the number of people who believe in God or believe in life after death or believe in heaven and hell, believe in a judgment after this life, believe in a coming appointment before God to give an account for our lives, then the worse the world becomes, not only morally, but also practically and physically. Thucydides, he was a Greek historian who lived about 400 years B.C., and he wrote of a historical event when uh, what was known as the mortal plague came upon the city of Athens. And he wrote, in essence, that as that great plague came upon the city and people realized that they were probably going to die, a study in terms of what their conduct became. And he said people committed every shameful crime and eagerly snatched at every lustful pleasure because they believed that life was short and they would never have to pay any penalty to either God or man. You see, take away the consciousness of a life to come. Take away the consciousness of resurrection, complete with its accompanying judgment before God then man loses a God-given and very needed inducement to both restraint and holy living. Why does that happen? Again, because it's only logical. Each of those truths that I speak about, the fact that there is a resurrection, there is a life after this one, that there is a judgment coming, that there is a heaven and there is a hell, and there is a personal God that I will one day stand before and give an answer for the life that I have lived. Each one of those things is intended to produce thoughtfulness in us. And it is intended to provide a needed restraint upon our behavior. You remove those things and you have the exact opposite. You have moral anarchy and it will not stop there. And you have the start of moral anarchy in the Western world now. It's well developed. But you end up with moral anarchy and then you end up after that with rampant wickedness. 
And it's for that reason that the Apostle Paul exhorts them, and thus in verse 33, do not be deceived, evil company company corrupts good habits. He's calling upon those that are attending the church at Corinth there to separate themselves from these false teachers who are teaching that there is no resurrection because they and their doctrine, false doctrine, would end up corrupting good habits. False teaching never leads us into true holiness. It will never do that. What we believe will influence how we live. What we believe in life always influences how we end up living our life. So he calls on them further in verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. So chapter 15 isn't this theological conversation about resurrection. Those who had come to believe this false doctrine, Paul says, they needed to come to their senses, open their eyes up, and realize that this was sin that they were engaged in, false doctrine, and they needed to repent of it. In other words, Paul says there's no compromise here on the issue of resurrection. That has to be repented out of. And verse 34, he goes on further and says, For some do not have the knowledge of God, in other words, these false teachers, they claim to have a knowledge of God, but they weren't even Christians. And finally, he closes all of it by saying, I, say, I speak this to your shame. And in essence, he rebukes these Christians in that church at Corinth for so easily, being so easily deceived on something that is so obviously taught within Christianity and within the Bible, and for allowing these kinds of people to come in and teach within the fellowship this no-resurrection nonsense when it was clear that anyone that would hold that position, number one, doesn't know the Bible, and number two, doesn't know God. I tell you, when they read this letter, maybe on a Sunday night service of the Church of Corinth, that phrase, I speak this to your shame, it would have really stung them. But sometimes we need to be stung in order to, for the lesson not to be forgotten quickly. And so wrong thinking about the resurrection or about any other foundational doctrine of the Christian faith or wrong thinking about anything that contradicts what the Bible has to say, it inevitably leads to wrong behavior. Every time. Every time. It leads to wrong behavior. Wrong believing always leads to wrong behaving. It's how we're made. It's just the way that it is. Now let me close by making a couple of points. In our passage, Paul is defending the truth of resurrection. But he's also trying to get the church at Corinth and us to understand again that what we believe has consequences in life. And those consequences are both spiritual, moral, and physical. That what we believe about anything is never going to remain 
neatly compartmentalized in our minds, but ultimately it will translate into our speaking and into our doing and into our living. We are the products of what we believe, whether for good or bad. We are the products of what we believe, and we will never live rightly until we believe rightly. And thus, it is important that what we believe be firmly founded upon the truth. And that's why Jesus, he's got the order perfect, as you would expect. Jesus spoke to his disciples in John chapter 8. And he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth first. And you shall know the truth. And then here it is second. And the truth will make you free. It begins with the knowing. And then it translates practically into our life. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You begin with truth, and then spiritual and moral and practical freedom follows. And as Christians, it's so important that we ask of every thought, of every decision, of every emotion we feel, What does the Bible say about this? Because we can't trust our own decision-making. We can't trust our emotions. Emotions lie all of the time. And so we have to have something that we test these things by in order to stay safe. Because what we believe is going to translate into our lives. And so to be able to ask of everything in our life, What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say related to this? And then what the Bible confirms or has to say about that issue, we glom onto that, we hold onto that, we practice that knowing this is going to lead me into the highest quality of life a person can live this side of heaven. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the church of Thessalonica, he said, He said, test all things. On the basis of what? On the basis of the Word of God. Test all things and then hold on to, hold fast to, that which is good. Not everything is good that we test. And the Bible reveals what is good and what is bad so that we can hold on to what is good because it will have consequences in our life. If you sit here this morning... And you are not yet a Christian. You have not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. In becoming a follower of Jesus or being invited to become a follower of him, you might wonder to yourself, perfectly free to do it. You wouldn't be a thinking person if you didn't do it. But you might wonder to yourself, well, how in the world can I know whether Jesus is going to actually lead me into truth? And, and how can I know that? There's a million voices in the world today that claim to be speaking the truth, whether it's an infomercial on television or religious leaders or f- uh, philosophy leaders or college professors or mom or dad. 
There's all a zillion voices claiming to speak truth, not only in our day, but throughout all of history. So who's telling the truth? How can I know who's telling the truth? And Jesus declared that anyone who desires to know whether he is speaking the truth about life, that you can feel free to put him to the most demanding test possible concerning his claim to lead people into truth and thus into freedom. And he declared it in one of my favorite passages of Scripture in all of the Bible when he declared to the religious leaders of his day, he said, but wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, wisdom is justified by the quality of person it produces, the type of person that it produces. True wisdom has to earn the right to be called wisdom on the basis of the quality of human being that that wisdom produces. Wisdom is not wisdom simply because someone declares it to be wisdom. It is not wisdom even if the whole world believes it to be wisdom. Wisdom has to earn the right to be called wisdom. And you look all around the world, across the broad diversity of mankind in this world, and look at the beautiful life, the quality of life, that without exception, obedience to Jesus' truth produces. Because a person walks in Jesus' truth, walks in the truth that he taught. We are living life as God intended it to be lived concerning our spiritual health, our emotional health, our mental health, our physical health. And when we follow Jesus into his truth, we find ourselves not only in right relationship with God, But we find ourselves then in right relationship with our fellow man. And we find ourselves in right relationship with all of creation. No fighting against how God has made the world and the flow of the world physically, morally, spiritually. We are going now with that particular flow. As opposed to what kind of person the wisdom of this world is producing hopeless lives, hopeless lives, self-dominated lives, self-addicted lives, sin-addicted lives, broken people. Look at the world we live in. Look at all of these voices that are claiming to declare wisdom, but then look at the kind of person the wisdom produces in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year, in 10 years, in 20 years. What kind of person does it produce? 
And look at all of the voices. God has been put in the corner with a dunce cap on in the culture. People are so smart with all of their PhDs and their education and their accomplishments. And then you look at their life right below the surface level or look at the kind of quality of life that's produced by people who are their disciples. And it's broken people. How many people are going to need to be medicated in the United States of America before we realize we've got a problem here? We've got a problem with truth. We've got a problem with wisdom and what people are calling wisdom and what is being called wisdom is killing people all around us. You don't need me to tell you that. And some medications are necessary. I'm not talking about all of it. But even the people in the fields are saying, this is epidemic. Why is our country bombed on levels like never before in terms of drugs and pills and terms of alcohol? Why are they escaping? They're escaping a truth that they can't face anymore, a wisdom that's been foisted on them that they realize is no match for life. It's killing them. And now all they can hope for is escape. How many states are we going to legalize marijuana in before we realize there's something wrong here? Are we going to legalize it in all 50 before we look below the surface and say, what are people trying to escape? What truth is killing them? But you don't have the option if you don't know the Lord. One day it will come. One day, as in the case of all epidemics, there's a tipping point where people do finally realize in mass we have been fed a bill of goods. This is nonsense. They foisted this on us, and now we reject it in mass. But you may not live long enough to see that happen. You've got to decide that for yourself and look at the world that you live in. And look at the people that this world and man's wisdom is producing. Look at your own life that your own wisdom has produced. And then look at the life of Christ and the Bible. Look at the quality of life that he introduced into every human being who became his follower. And does to this day, without exception, the majesty of that life. And there's no shame in that life. You don't have to drink yourself to escape that life. You'll want to stay away from anything that would inebriate you for five minutes, that would cause you to miss five minutes of the glory of what he produces in a human life. There's a lot that I'm ashamed of in my life, but I'm not ashamed of one thing he's made me into and not ashamed of the life that he's brought me into. Truth is important. Truth is important. And so how do you enter into that truth? You've got to be thinking. You've got to be thinking for yourself. It's you. It's God. You've got to look out for yourself. Nobody else is looking out for you. But he's given us a mind. 
to think with. That's why that sense that there must be something more to life is always there until we know God because that's what we've been created for. That's why when you were a kid somewhere, just divorced of the whole self-esteem madness that goes on all around us, but somewhere in your life you knew you were special. You knew you were created for something special, to do something special in this life. And then one goofy thing after another, it gets buried by ten burnt relationships or under the weight of your own wisdom or somebody else's wisdom, you crash and burn 20 times. Now you're just trying to escape what life is all about. And that hope, that confidence, I've been made for something. Something's going to happen through my life. It gets buried under years of that stuff. And you got to go over and you got to dust that off and realize that was never a casualty of something that God who put that in my heart, he's the one that put that in my heart. It's a casualty of believing things that declared themselves to be true and are not true. And there's still a hope to not only feel that feeling, but to enter into the life that I hoped it would be on the other side of that feeling. And it's found in Christ and by putting your faith in Christ and by coming to him this morning and saying to God, God, I confess I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all my life. I accept your assessment of me. I'm not offended by it. I also believe your assessment that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. That's why I'm lonely at my core. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your only, only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins and that he was buried and rose again on the third day. And I choose to put my trust in him this morning for the forgiveness of my sins. And when you do that, the greatest miracle a person can ever experience in life occurs when God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will enter into your life and make you into something new. He will not disappoint you. There is no case, no life, no past, no addiction, no problem that is too big for him to change. He loves you. He made you. It's Father's Day. You see, well, there's a mom and a dad in there. No, there's a God way behind them. God made you. And he made you for a relationship with him. And all that can begin right now, today, by just trusting in him. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the relationship with God that you've been created for. And without which, nothing in life makes sense and without which you will never be the free person that God wants you to be. That life is just waiting for you.
God is at the edge of his seat, so to speak. God runs. It's in the Bible. He's at the edge of his seat, so to speak, desiring to come into your life if you'll give him the opportunity. He's done everything but put you in a headlock and force you. And the reason he doesn't do that is then what you're doing would be meaningless because it wouldn't be done out of your own will and out of your own love. You come forward and receive him this morning. He's eager to meet every promise that I've given to you today and more from his word. There's hope. Hope is disappearing today. People can't live without hope. There's hope for you today. And it's found in Christ. You receive that hope into your life. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Simple, clear, real, honest, right where we live. And Father, we thank you this morning for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for what that resurrection means to us on a daily basis. Thank you for hope, Lord. And as your children, we just say thank you for the quality of life that you have delivered us into. We can hardly believe that something even greater spiritually waits us to say nothing physically and every way else when, Jesus, one day we see you face to face. Thank you so much for your resurrection. Thank you so much for our life. And we thank you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.